0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald-Times in Bloomington. And today our guest is U.S. Attorney Susan Brooks, whose district covers southern Indiana. Mary Catherine couldn't be with us today, but uh, Susan and I are here, and we'll, we'll carry on for the next hour. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for being here. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Well, w- welcome to the program. I know it was a struggle getting in through all this graduation weekend traffic.
1: I realized that. <laughs> When I hit 10th Street and was just inching in, and you know, with it being Friday, I guess last day of finals, people are leaving. Yeah. I should have anticipated.
0: Well, that's all right. We have, we have those problems various times during the year. Bloomington gets kind of busy on Fridays. But uh, we're happy that you're here. Where is your office? Are you.
1: Our office is in Indianapolis. That's okay. where the main office is, although we do have a branch office down in Evansville.
0: Okay. And there are how many districts in Indiana for U.S. attorneys?
1: There are two, two? the okay. Northern District um, and the Southern District of Indiana is actually 60 counties. It Extends essentially from Muncie or Delaware County over to Tipton, all the way down to the Ohio River. Okay.
0: Now, as you know, as you know, and as our our listeners know, the your position, the position of U.S. Attorney, has been in the news a lot lately with uh, what's gone on with the firing of eight U.S. Attorney, U.S. Attorneys uh, and all the criticism that's come about that, with Alberto Gonzalez. Um, and I guess I, I want to ask about that. I'm not sure how, much you're, how comfortable you are talking about that. I didn't have a chance before the program to ask. It's a tough subject for yeah, all of us. Uh, yeah, but I, I wondered about, um, you know, that, the discussion of that issue being being so prominent in the news and, and what that's meant for the internal workings of your office.
1: Well, fortunately, um, it really is not affecting the work of our office. Um, Our offices – and that's the one thing all of the U.S. attorneys are saying. We're going to stay focused on the job, going to stay focused on the mission of the department. um, And and that's really uh, a very significant priority is just trying to keep focused. And also just trying um, maybe more so than we had to before demonstrating our decisions are not based on politics. Mm -hmm. The decisions our career prosecutors make – and I'm actually the only political appointee in the office – Everyone else in our office and in the offices around the country are career people. In fact, you probably know one, my first assistant, Tim Morrison. I absolutely know Tim. A very proud resident of Bloomington, Mm -hmm. Indiana Mm -hmm. uh, has been with the office almost 20 years. Um, And uh, so these are the men and women that make most of the decisions and recommendations to us, the U.S. attorneys. And um, so while we get involved in in case decisions, we are not the ones initiating investigations. We're not the ones directing, you know, the federal and uh, law enforcement agencies how to do their job or how our career prosecutors do our job. Um, we set the priorities for the office, uh, obviously based on you know whichever president is in power and whatever um, you know whatever priorities they deem appropriate for the country at that time. And we work hard to marshal our resources, limited though they may be, mm-hmm. in trying to focus on those priorities. So it's it, it really um, what is happening in the Beltway is really not affecting our offices. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: very good. We have our first phone call of the day. I want to follow up in several ways to what you said, but uh, we want to get to the phones when people call. So John is first. John?
2: Yes, I was wondering if, uh, if yours is the office that is enforcing the consent decree that was signed between uh, many par- parties here in Bloomington with, uh, at that time, Westinghouse enforcing the PCB
1: decree.
0: That was under Judge S. Hugh Dillon when he was um, in when he was still in office. And
1: well, uh, and thank you for uh, reminding me of that because that would have been quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and and while our offices, when you say enforcing the decree, our offices do not. It would be the investigative offices or the other departments that would be involved in that. Um, that would be monitoring the decree monitoring you know the um, compliance with the decree, then those agencies if, if various offices or if, or if someone is out of compliance and they would bring it to our office as litigators but we are not actually monitoring or you know we would not be the office that monitors compliance with those decrees yeah John a little does that bit, make sense
0: I think a little bit of, of background and, and Susan might be able to to play off of this I mean the consent decree was signed in uh, 1985. Five and it involved it was in federal court because it involved city county the EPA the um, State Department of Environmental Management or whatever it was called at the time mm-hmm. um, so but your role is I mean your job is like a federal prosecutor it 's a right. prosecuting attorney's office so so if there is somebody violating some part of the consent decree you then the might.
1: EPA uh, the EPA would then, in their council, all of the agencies have their own council, and they work on those matters preliminarily and make recommendations and, and with us bring actions. My lawyers, both the civil division and the criminal division, are the lawyers that then go into court to prosecute the matter, whether it's civil or criminal. Right. But it would be the EPA that would be monitoring the compliance.
0: John, any follow-up? Thank you very much. OK. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. 855 877 285 and noon at indiana.edu. Yeah, that was a tough one out of the box. <laughs>
1: 1985. Right, I, I right, didn't but, remember when that happened. So, know, I've,
0: I've been here a long thank time. Thank you. We're 84. Off. Right. Um, you were appointed by President Bush on October 12, 2001. So that was just, you know, a month after the, the Twin Towers. I want to take you back to, to that time and, and this can go in a couple different directions. But first of all, what's that um, – What's that selection process like? What did you have to go through before you were actually appointed?
1: Well, actually, um, when a a president wins an election, the winning party, um, the senior senator typically of that winning party forwards nominated or forwards a name to the president or may forward a few names to the White House. Uh, senator Luger had put together a, what is what he refers to as his Merit Selection Committee. And so there was a committee of individuals that uh, the senator chose from around the Southern District of Indiana. I had to submit a formal application to his office. Then I was selected uh, by that Merit Selection Committee to be the nominee from uh, Senator Lugar to the, to the White House. Mm-hmm. However, then I did have to go through a formal interview process with the Justice Department, obviously a very significant background check. Uh, as well, uh, um, and met with Attorney General Ashcroft before being nominated formally. Nominated by the Senate, uh, or I'm sorry, I was nominated by the President to the Senate Mm -hmm. in late July of 2001, mind you, before Uh 9-11. There had not been a lot of discussion during the nomination process, As to what my background was in homeland security or in counterterrorism matters, that was not the focus of the Justice Department um, at that time with respect to what experienced prosecutors had. Um, I had been an experienced criminal defense attorney had been in the courts a lot, had been a deputy mayor in the city of Indianapolis. I actually had been involved as the deputy mayor responsible for public safety. I actually had been involved in emergency preparedness and had been trained in emergency preparedness um, and talked about that during my process, but never really dreamed that it would become the number one priority and the focus of the Justice Department after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. So then... Uh, was uh, appointed or, I'm sorry, uh, nominated to the Senate, but then not confirmed until October because Mm -hmm. they recess for the month of August typically. So
0: did you testify before the Senate?
1: No, we are not required uh, to go for formal testimony. Uh, Federal judges are, um, but we are not required to do that. But all of our information is provided to the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's reviewed by staff and committee. Questions are given to us that we must respond to primarily in writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they review our packets um, for formal confirmation. So I was confirmed um, on the 12th. And I began – I was actually practicing at Ice Miller, large mm-hmm. law firm in Indianapolis at the time. I actually began the following Monday mm-hmm. on the 16th of October. And obviously our mission had changed significantly. Right. Uh, there were actually no presidentially appointed U.S. attorneys in place on September 11th because the confirmation process takes so long.
0: Wow. So since you – I mean you, you weren't in the job before September 11th. Correct. But could you talk a little bit about how the uh, – the priorities of your office have have shifted over the last six years. I mean, since September 11th, and with the great emphasis on homeland security, how things have how money may have been shifted around, how people have been shifted around.
1: There really has been a massive reorganization of federal law enforcement and of our offices all across the country, uh, in large part because of 9/11. Almost all of our offices now have counterterrorism units. Uh, individuals who focus all of their time uh, working with the Joint Terrorism Task Forces of the FBI, led by the FBI. Now, those, what we call JTTFs, existed before 9-11. There were not nearly as many of them in the country as there are now. I believe we have over 150 JTTF units. These are groups of investigators that come to work every day. They're FBI, they're other federal agencies, as well as local law enforcement, who go to the FBI every day and focus on nothing but prevention of terrorism. After 9-11, their whole focus was on gathering all of the evidence that we could to determine who the perpetrators were. Mm -hmm. So there was a long period of time where that's what they did all the time. So we also now have what are called intelligence research specialists, um, in each of our offices, so analysts focus just on counterterrorism in the U.S. attorney's offices, and obviously the FBI has shifted dramatically the number of resources they have devoted to counterterrorism mm-hmm. and counterintelligence as well. Um, which has taken away from their criminal, their other criminal priorities in some ways, but they're working hard and have gotten a lot of resources to try to ensure that both sides of their house are strong.
0: Mm -hmm. Our guest today is is Susan Brooks. She's the the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. When you... um, your staffing uh, I think on the the uh, bio that I have it says that you have twenty nine lawyers and a support staff of thirty five persons um, county prosecutors' offices all have investigators. Do you have – are part of those 35 investigators or do you use the FBI?
1: No, we actually do not have investigators okay. in our office. That's not, Now, some of the larger offices, say in Southern District of New York and Manhattan and Chicago, some of those offices do actually have investigators on staff. But most U.S. attorneys' offices do not. We rely on – for counterterrorism, we rely on the FBI – Um, The JTTF is the lead investigator in a counterterrorism matter. Um, ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, is a significant agency with respect to um, helping us in counterterrorism investigations. But believe it or not, all of the federal agencies now, whether it's the United States Postal Inspection Service, whether it's Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, Drug Enforcement Administration, um, U.S. Marshal Service, all of those agencies have prevention of terrorism is a top priority. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the terrorists uh, plan for such long periods of time, they practice their plans, they change their plans. Um, Finding the individuals in this country um, who wish to do us harm is the mission of all law enforcement, not just the federal, because we know that any tips are going to come to us Probably not from an FBI agent seeing something, but from a local police officer or a local law enforcement official could be a campus security police officer who sees something suspicious or who receives some information about something suspicious, who then passes it on for follow-up investigation. So truly, this is not just the mission of uh, the federal investigators. It's all of law enforcement now.
0: Now, how how does that... Play out for you, sort of in the in the day to day operation of your office, and you know, for for Hoosiers in the 60 counties that you cover, um, does that mean that your you know, your office is getting tips from people? Or are you checking in with people in many of those 60 counties? How does that work?
1: No, great question. We after 9/11, um, Attorney General Ashcroft. Instructed all of the U.S. attorneys and there are 94 of us across the country to stand up what are called anti-terrorism advisory councils, ATACS, is what we refer to them. And what I've done in the Southern District of Indiana is take our, I took our 60 counties, divided it into five zones, and we go out as federal uh, agency heads, all those agencies I just mentioned. They will go out on the road and we will hold meetings information-sharing meetings with local law enforcement, with local prosecutors. We also involve, involve public health officers, folks like that. We do trainings, a lot of training. We have done uh, a tremendous amount of training since 9-11 mm-hmm. with local law enforcement. What kind of training? Um, training on um, weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. Type of what type of indicators, uh, training them on... Um, history of al-Qaeda, the history of other counterterrorism cells, um, trying uh, to—just like they've been trained, law enforcement is trained in, um, you know, detecting other criminal activity and learning about how to find other criminal activity. We've been doing that type of training for counterterrorism measures. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Now, um, when you— Are involved in that kind of training. Do you bring these trainers in from all over the the country to do that? Do you have people who are specialized?
1: We do at times. People will come in from around the country and put on the trainings, or our own JTTF members, our own Joint Terrorism Task Force members, are trained specifically, and they will do the trainings. For instance, the FBI um, has recently just put on a weapons of mass destruction training for local law enforcement. Typically these trainings are provided free to local law enforcement, Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a huge benefit to their departments to get this training. Right.
0: Okay. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight 811 285 9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Now, I mean, obviously there are things that, you know, about investigations that you wouldn't want to share with, and I wouldn't want you to. Um, but what kind of calls do you get or how? what kind of volume of calls do you get about homeland security issues? Uh, what, what's the, the level of reporting that's going on? Is this something that, you know, every couple of days you hear something that, hey, this may be a terrorism related?
1: Well, what happens is, um, and what I think has dramatically improved is that all across the country, and in fact, across the world, our investigators are connected here locally. So for instance, if, if over in the caves of Afghanistan, when our military has done searches um, of, you know, uh, places where terrorists have been hiding, they may come across a piece of paper that may have a 317 or an 812 area code, a phone number, uh, those types of things. And I'm not saying that's happened. Right. But I'm saying that, that is an example of the military would get that to mm-hmm. the FBI over in Afghanistan who then would ensure that our Joint Terrorism Task Force had that phone number, tracked that phone number down, found out who had that phone number mm-hmm. and wh- what are they doing here, why are they here, and try to make that, those links. Mm-hmm. And so what was talked about early on, connecting the dots, mm-hmm. I think that's a great example of how we are connecting the dots much better than ever before investigations all across the world, Canada, over in England, when they, when they disrupt those terrorist cells, we look for any connection whatsoever to Southern District of Indiana. We will get leads from those agencies. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, what about um, citizen help? And, Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and I want to ask this in two ways, I guess. You know, how much citizen help are you getting? And then You know, sometimes I I guess, um, you know, we think of ourselves in in Indiana as being a little insulated from the rest of the world and perhaps, um, well, I want to say this in a nice way, but maybe not not as tolerant as we might be. Uh, Are you seeing a lot of suspicion of perhaps people from the Middle East? A lot of tips along those lines that maybe don't pan out?
1: I think nationally there were, in the short run after 9-11 for, for a few years, I believe nationally there were probably more of those types of calls than, than we are seeing at this time. Um, and sure, you know, the JTTF was trying to follow up on every lead possible – I mean, because it is, you know, that one lead that doesn't get followed up that could be, you know, uh, could be uh, the sign that really broke open an entire cell or something. Mm -hmm. But – one thing that we focused very hard on in the Justice Department was uh, protecting individuals' rights as well and ensuring that the civil rights of individuals in this country were being protected. And a number of prosecutions were brought in this country for people who were harassing or for people who were acting out against uh, you know, particular groups. Um, And, uh, you know, we had the incident of the very angry man who ran his truck into the mosque. Um, You know, now that prosecution went to the the local prosecutor rather than we took it federally. But what happens is we work with our local prosecutors to decide which jurisdiction it would best go into. Um, we do get a lot of calls, not a, a huge amount of calls from citizens. They often reach out to their local law enforcement first, mm-hmm. and then we do get those calls and follow up on those. Um, those are critically important, and uh, we really count on the citizens, and we ask the local law enforcement to ask their citizens to be vigilant. And the longer we get away from nine eleven, we do remain very concerned, and we become more concerned that the citizenry will just—will um, not think it is as important as it was a few years ago, and it still remains very important. Well, as
0: you mentioned, the terrorist events um, take a long time to plan.
1: Absolutely, and and we've seen that. We know from, you know, their mm-hmm. training manuals and the things that we've obtained uh, overseas that uh, that they do take years of planning, and um, and so that's why, you know, we just— Need to, re- need to remain vigilant is the best way. And if people do see something suspicious, now, for instance, bank tellers, other people who handle large uh, monetary transactions, if they see something suspicious, they're required to file what are called suspicious activity reports, mm-hmm. because it might not be that someone actually has weapons, maybe here in the Southern D- of District of Indiana, but maybe there is an organization funneling a massive amount of money through Indiana to um, for the purpose of financing terrorism. That's called material supportive terrorism and terrorism financing. That could be flowing through financial institutions here. And sometimes it might be just that savvy bank teller mm-hmm. that sees something suspicious and in asking questions. They file those activity reports and we follow up on all of those. People need to be alert. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to Mike. Mike.
2: Ah, thank you. Uh-huh. I, uh, in, in, in light of uh, the attorney general's uh, appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee on April 19th, I gave an exam question to my undergraduates, and I'd love to get uh, uh, this U.S. attorney's uh, answer to the question. Um, The question was, uh, the U.S. attorneys are political appointees. They are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. They can be, be removed at any time by the administration. The recent firing of seven U.S. attorneys has been controversial, however. In his appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee on April 19th, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez provided a a brief explanation for each of the dismissals, and I give it, um, and and mention additional questions that the senators raised about the dismissals. And then the questions are, uh, this controversy raises several questions about the the policy-administration dichotomy and democratic control of public agencies. A. Make an argument that the U.S. attorneys be political appointees serving at the pleasure of the administration. B, make an argument that the U.S. attorneys not be political appointees and instead should be part of the merit system. C, make an argument that the dismissals of the seven U.S. attorneys is in keeping with theories of democratic control. And D, make an argument that the dismissals of the seven U.S. attorneys is not in keeping with theories of democratic control. Help me with my grading.
1: (laughs) Great question. What class is this?
2: (laughs) It's an undergraduate introduction to public management.
1: Well, <laughs> talk about public management lessons that this uh, entire um, debacle—and that's what I'll call it—on behalf of the administration, they would admit it's a debacle, um, and uh, no one is proud that we're in this position. Let me let me assure you of that. Um, I actually—I was not uh, an assistant U.S. attorney. I was not a career person prior to becoming a presidentially appointed U.S. attorney. However, what has been somewhat odd, and this is a bit more background rather than just directly answering your question, um, this administration actually chose, I have been told, I have not seen the exact statistics, chose more career prosecutors as U.S. attorneys than any administration before it. I've been very proud of that, that... Uh, that President Bush and Attorney General Ashcroft chose a, a huge number of career prosecutors to become presidentially appointed, which meant to me that these were individuals that they that had uh, uh, really um, were outstanding assistants in their offices, had done significant cases, um, and uh, who the president and the attorney general had great confidence in. Um, I do believe that when that u s attorneys should remain political appointees for the reason that when a president comes into office, the priorities of that president change from one president to another, and that is what the democratic process allows. The people vote into office who they believe are going to um, uh, I, I believe who they believe are going to uh, follow the priorities they 've set forth in their campaigns. Um, and and because that is the people have voted that president into office, that president's priorities might not be the same as the prior or the future presidents, and they need individuals leading agencies who will then utilize their resources and implement those priorities. A merit employee um, could say... Uh, You know, I don't agree with that priority. Therefore, I am not going to do anything with respect to that priority. Um, And in order for us to marshal our resources, we are not just the Southern District of Indiana prosecuting cases. We are part of the entire national um, criminal justice system and the civil system of justice. And so... I I do think it is important that if uh, the president believes, as he did, that gun violence was the number one domestic problem in this country, and he wanted all of us to work very hard to increase our gun prosecution numbers, that we should do that, because gun crime was killing more young people in this country than any other cause. Um, Or if a president um, believed that terrorism and prevention of terrorism should be the top priority... There are many offices uh, who might say, you know, it's just not going to happen in Indiana, so I'm not going to put the resources there. Well, I think that's wrong. We have to listen to – and as political appointees, we recognize that that is what our job is, is to follow the mission of the leader of the government at that time.
0: Mike, so that was the the answer to question A. Um, And
1: I believe question – And question – I believe question A and and C, isn't it?
0: And and I, I don't think so, we're gonna. We're, I don't want to force Susan to to create a case for for question B unless she wants to. Well, then she only gets half
2: credit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, but interestingly, what I find interesting though in this administration, more career people than ever before were asked to be United States attorneys. Now, keep in mind, they leave their career appointment or they leave that career job. So those career prosecutors who maybe had been career prosecutors for 15 years or more, once they became U.S. attorney, they knew that uh, at the time that their uh, career ended as U.S. attorney, they had no rights to go back to their career position. They knew that at the time they accepted the political appointment. Does that make sense?
0: Sure. All right. So – the, that's, uh, I think we're going to leave it at that, Mike. Okay, thank you. Right, thank you. Good for luck call.
1: grading those tests. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Mike. That was a great question. It was. I like that. You know. But it's
1: just fascinating to me um, and that this entire dialogue about United States mm-hmm. attorneys, about political appointees, because the one thing uh, is now exam questions mm-hmm. yeah. at our largest best public universities. Um, but I do think it's a great exam question, actually. Yeah. And so I commend you, Professor, for, for that type of uh, reflection on management of government agencies.
0: And I'm, I'm sure that some students could uh, certainly craft a, a very good answer. Both ways. That would be why they shouldn't be political appointees. Mm -hmm. So we've hit halftime of the program. So Susan Brooks is our guest today. She's the U.S. attorney for the district that covers southern Indiana. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
3: www.southdunstreet.info. Teachers know that juggling the demands of classroom instruction and mandates for teacher training is difficult. WFIU, in association with the Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations, offers PBS Teacher Line. It's an online professional development resource for pre K through 12 teachers endorsed by the U.S. Department of Education. You can earn renewal units for license certification. And graduate degree credit is a way to meet state and federal requirements for highly qualified teachers. More information available at WFIU.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald-Times, along with... My guest today, U.S. Attorney Susan Brooks, who is the U.S. Attorney for Southern Indiana. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I'm going to read this email because it's my job. You've covered a lot of this ground, so you can say as much or as little as you want. Okay. The emailer says, what is your guest's opinion on the firing of the eight U.S. attorneys which appear to be politically motivated?
1: As I've said, this um, entire situation uh, very much saddens all of us in the department, the career folks, as well as the political appointees. However, we all do know, as I kind of talked about in my last response, that we do serve at the will of the president, at the pleasure of the president. We actually all know that we can be asked to step down for, for reasons or for no reason. And you know that going in. And in fact, after the president was elected a second time, we all were kind of wondering whether or not we might get the call and say, you know, uh, or your four-year term, because our original term is for four years. It really doesn't span the entire length of the president's term. And so we wondered, after you did your four years, you know, in October of 05, was I going to get the call and, and move on? Um, so... Uh, You know, I'm just very sad uh, that it's all happening. I do think it is causing a lot of questions about um, the management of our offices. But let me just tell you um, that I have more confidence in my colleagues across the country. I have had tremendous confidence, rather, in my colleagues across the country. They are um, outstanding lawyers. They are outstanding citizens. Um, they have uh, have shown uh, great judgment in many cases, in difficult cases, difficult decisions. And the thing that people don't realize are the decisions, the really tough decisions U.S. attorneys make that don't ever get any press and that don't ever get any media. And um, so I just have tremendous – I'm very proud of the record of the Justice Department since um, we came into office in 01. We have a tremendous record. And so that's the type of thing I want to remain focused on and, uh, and just finishing the work of this administration on the work on the priorities that the president set for us and that now Attorney General Gonzalez has set for us.
0: All right. Thanks for that answer. I appreciate it. Thank I you. know that's a difficult topic. Um, there are several things that your office does – Handle um you, there are a lot of, seems like there are a lot of drug convictions that fall under your purview i I guess I, maybe I'll ask the question this way: we've been in a war on drugs, are we still in a war on drugs, and if we are, are we winning
1: I would say you know i i really um I really don't like it when politicians say we're in wars, war on crime, war on drugs, war you know um what's happening overseas is a real war um that's war. Um, and I'm not going to comment any further on okay, that, or right. I, that I have nothing to do with that. So please, no questions on that. That's uh, <laughs> way outside my pay grade. Um, but you know, what our fights, our our um, prosecutions, all of our public education efforts, um, I do see drugs as um, causing. A lot of our crime problems in this country as being one of the underlying causes of our violence in this country and uh, the drugs that we focus on, there are different focuses at different times. Cocaine and crack were the drugs that we were you know, fighting so strong in the 90s. Now, meth has really taken over. Heroin is starting to make a comeback. There was a period of time several years ago when ecstasy – we were very concerned about what ecstasy was, was doing in this country. And, and the reason why um, you know, we put so much effort into uh, drugs – when I was a criminal defense attorney – Many of my clients, the reason they found themselves in trouble was because they had an alcohol addiction, a drug addiction, a sex addiction, or they were in a a horrible relationship, a relationship problem. That's what really found them, you know, entwined in the criminal justice system, committing some type of crime. One of the things, for instance, that they're finding with meth addicts is they are seeing an increase in identity thefts because meth addicts. It is so easy to get hooked on meth and yet obviously cost them to keep their habit going that one of the easiest ways they're finding to get money is stealing people's identities and getting money from those identity thefts. Um, So it causes other criminal problems. And, um, you know, I think that we've done a lot of good things with respect to meth from Partnerships with Mexico and Central America that DEA has in trying to keep the flow of meth from coming into this country. We obviously changed our laws to get the pseudoephedrine off the counter, and I know people think it's a hassle that they now have to go up to the pharmacist and sign for that Pseudofed, but that is working. Those small labs that people used to be able to, you know, that popped up all over this country, the number of labs is down significantly because of that law. Mm-hmm. And And when you look at things such as methamphetamine, which is one of the biggest problems in southern Indiana, methamphetamine addicts don't take care of their children. Their teeth are rotting. Their health problems are significant. And we as taxpayers end up paying for all of those things. So I I do think... We're making an impact, but it's hard because after we get a handle on meth, there will probably be something else. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, when you, we had uh, Sheriff Jim Kennedy from Monroe County on the show. A good friend. Show. Yeah, we had Jim on the show. And he talk, we asked him about meth, and he talked about how it's not as big a problem in Monroe County as it is in a lot of the rural counties. That's right. And so when you think about the, the 60 counties that you cover, you know, what, what percentage of them would you say that meth is the number one problem that law enforcement—
1: Probably 80 really? percent. Right. It's the urban areas in our district, although Terre Haute, which is, you know, an urban area, it's their biggest problem. Mm -hmm. So meth is the biggest problem in almost every place, but uh, it's probably not the biggest problem in Muncie, Anderson, Indianapolis, and Bloomington. But it is the biggest problem in Evansville. And in Terre Haute, Vincennes, the Vincennes jail, uh, talked with that sheriff and, and that police chief. The Vincennes jail is, they have said, over 80 percent meth addicts um, committing other crimes. It's causing them huge um, uh, medical bills because the county has to take care of those folks who are in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so meth is meth is the biggest problem in the Southern District of Indiana, but in our larger areas, um, I would still say that cocaine and marijuana are still the the number one drug
0: Well, since you have a, a an audience of people in south southern Indiana that are cover i think we cover twenty two counties probably more than that mm-hmm. with all the with the different towers that that uh, we have now but um, what help can citizens give you? What, what What should citizens be looking for in terms of this issue of meth? I mean, are there things that if they notice something in their around their their home or notice something if they go into a store somebody who 's buying something
1: well luckily and, and yes, um, and a lot of the retailers the state um, through meth free Indiana has really done a very nice job educating retailers about things like excessive uh, purchases of um, batteries because they take the battery acid, they take the uh, materials from batteries to actually cook the meth, if you can imagine. And you probably know about all of this. But there are products that go into the, the making of meth that the retailers have actually done a very nice job alerting law enforcement or don't allow. But once we took that pseudo, which is a necessary ingredient, off-the-counter, and people have to sign. As I've said, those meth labs have gone way down. What really, though, most of the meth coming to Indiana comes from Mexican trafficking organizations. It does not, it never, the majority never came from the mom-and-pop pop labs. The majority of the meth or ice that comes into this state is from trafficking organizations from outside of the state, coming across the southwest border or from California, where there used to be a lot more super labs being trafficked into organizations in Southern District of Indiana. Those are the cases my office focuses on. Those are the cases we try to take out the entire organization. Mm -hmm. And we try to work back to the source of supply, California, Texas, Mexico. We actually try to go after those individuals as well. That's where the larger quantity come in. Okay.
0: alright eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. 285 877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu. We have about 10 or 12 minutes left in the program. We have a, another phone call, and it's Sarah. Sarah?
2: Hi. Uh, these specifics are just fascinating, and I could listen for a long time, but I've been asking one question in my head as I've been listening, and I, I maybe you've already talked about it. I may have missed it. Um, When does your office get involved in things, and and when does it stay at the state and local level?
1: Great question. Um, Actually, a lot of uh, investigations um, do start—well, let me give you a simple answer. If it crosses state lines, if it crosses state lines and goes into different jurisdictions, depending on what the criminal activity is, our office would get involved. And so, uh, for instance, and this is a horrible crime, but a violation of what's called the Mann Act. Mm -hmm. If someone were to move a child across state lines for purposes of sexual activity, that would be something our office would be very involved in. As opposed to a child molest, for instance, that just happens in a certain county, then that is when the state... Um, when the state prosecution obviously kicks in rather than us, so or now crime because of technology, a lot of crimes are being perpetrated with the use of the internet, and so those types of crimes, our investigators have the ability to obtain more records than a local prosecutor might obtain in the investigation of crimes. Does that make sense yeah
2: and and so i'm that all makes very good sense and so my, my other question is, how do you get involved in something like a rural meth lab
1: then? Well, our offices actually don't typically handle prosecutions of rural meth labs. Those uh-huh. usually do go to the state. DEA does get very involved, though, in assisting local law enforcement in the cleanup efforts. But we typically do not do individual local meth labs because when we go into federal court, the sentences... Uh, for a meth dealer or a meth distributor are often based on the quantity of meth they're distributing, and those local labs usually don't produce sufficient quantities to get significant federal sentences. They get tougher sentences in state court. Does that make sense? Because the quantities... Yeah, but
2: it's sort of a different standard from the across-state line standard that you gave me a minute ago. Yes.
1: Oh, yeah. no, that's another consideration okay. that we take into consideration. If it was a meth lab, though, that was producing really significant quantities, and to be honest, I don't have those quantities in front of me right now, but really significant quantities of meth, that would be something we would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And so um, we look at, or for instance, in theft cases or embezzlement type of cases, we have threshold criteria as to maybe the amount that is stolen that would in, would get us involved in a federal prosecution, we often work with our local prosecutors on these cases to decide, to be quite frank, which jurisdiction is going to get the greater sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so it's not uncommon in an investigation, whether it's a drug case, whether it might be, for instance, a human trafficking case, because we now have state laws against human trafficking, whether it is um, some type of embezzlement case or a mortgage fraud that's been a big thing in southern Indiana. We will work with local prosecutors and try and determine who can get the bigger sentence. And that's how we make some decisions. Thank
0: you. All right, Sarah. Thanks a lot for the call okay 877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu. a few more issues that uh, I definitely want to try to cover in the last seven or eight minutes uh, one is is the idea of gun violence. You mentioned that that was a priority of the president um, you know in the wake of what happened at virginia tech um, how How does that um, alter? I guess the, the way you would approach your job, what, what's, the, what's the impact of some major public incident that involves gun violence like Virginia Tech on your day-to-day operation? Well,
1: obviously people begin as they should begin looking at um, whether or not laws should be changed, whether or not policies should be changed. And I'm really uh, pleased that um, and you might have heard about this Attorney General Gonzalez actually came to the Southern District of Indiana and held what we called a Virginia Tech roundtable uh, actually uh, folks um, from the head of your campus security here as well as uh, some legal counsel from IU we reached out to the various campuses to invite them to this roundtable
0: That was Monday and Tuesday that was, was on Tuesday Tuesday, Tuesday
1: morning of uh, all morning at Indiana Government Center we had about six or seven universities that folks I mean they I got the call on Thursdays and last Thursday and Friday, rearranged uh, very busy schedules, and came. Um, we had an Under Secretary of Education, Health and Human Services, and the Attorney General came in, and they hosted this roundtable. on on education issues, mental health issues, and law enforcement issues. And then they all came together. Um, So the types of ways that incidents like that impact us is we have to now go back and say, you know, where are the breakdowns? And one of the biggest breakdowns and one of the most difficult things that we learned through this, mental health professionals are very concerned Rightly so, in part because of HIPAA and FERPA laws, which are, you know, privacy laws with respect to education privacy and as well as health privacy. Very concerned about when they can share information with law enforcement about dangerous individuals. And we talked about the need for additional training, additional discussions as to when uh, and whether or not some mental health professionals should maybe receive. What came out of our discussion is, should they be receiving some immunity? They're afraid of being sued by people for sharing information. And so we had a great discussion about that incident. One of the other things that came out of that uh, roundtable, it is – next to impossible to say that a campus like Indiana University or almost any campus can be locked down. Um, Lockdowns are virtually impossible for big open campuses. Unlike a high school or an elementary school where you have one or two buildings you can lock down, it is next to impossible to lock down. So law enforcement talked a great deal about we need to get rid of that notion. We need to learn all the systems to communicate with faculty, with students. You know, you have – students who are driving in, you know, to campuses. They're not just here. So one method of communicating is never going to work. So we had great discussions about the need to create much stronger teams and partnerships. Chancellor Bantz, Uh, was a very strong participant in this, actually spoke out on behalf of the education section, talked about the need for much greater teamwork and partnerships between mental health, law enforcement, and educators on making sure this doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. We have a phone call, and I want to talk to you about the second part of his visit after the phone call. Sure. Phone calls from Jordan. Jordan?
4: Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I'm a child of the 60s and uh, was involved in the anti-war movement. And uh, you know, became afraid because of the infiltration of FBI and other agencies. And uh,
1: can I ask what you mean by infiltration? Yeah, there were
4: there were people from FBI who got involved, uh, pretending to be anti-war activists, and then you know, as part of their observation of what was going on. Sure.
1: Okay. Thank you for clarifying.
4: Um. I I must admit that I'm afraid again. And I've been afraid since 9-11. And I've been more afraid of what our government can do than I'd say since the early 70s. And I wish I was not so afraid. And I was wondering if uh, you could, in, in maybe using some detail rather than generalities, dispel some of this fear. I mean, because I've heard, you know, after 9-11 that there were peace groups that were investigated. And so um, I'd really like my fear to be dispelled, if you can.
1: Um, I'll do my best to give you um, one example is that, and I know that a tool that the prosecutors and law enforcement were provided after 9-11 was the passage of the Patriot Act, for example. And I know that the Patriot Act is one of those um, laws that uh, cause obviously great concern for individuals like yourself. But I want to let you know that in almost all circumstances where the government is planning on um, investigating very deeply into what individuals' activities are, and primarily those are you know more much more often than not foreign individuals rather than American citizens. They have to be able to sufficiently articulate on paper to an independent judge, a magistrate or a judge and typically obtain some sort of warrant, or some, and I don't know how much you know about the legal process, but they have to go and seek permission right. from a third-party magistrate or a third-party judge. That rarely comes out in all of these discussions. It is rare for the government on its own – now, when I say the government, law enforcement or prosecutors on their own to be conducting the types of investigations I think you're very worried about without going to judges and magistrates who are appointed by Democrats and Republicans. I mean they're – you know, our federal judges have lifetime appointments. Right. and, you know, they are the ones that have to approve what we are doing. And that's probably the best way that I can assure you that you do not have a rogue government outdoing whatever the heck it wants to do. That's what the FISA court, and I'm sure, you know, no one really talked about the FISA court before 9-11, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Mm-hmm. That, that court is monitoring any time that the government is, is trying to learn and the the reason that, why foreign individuals might be here to do us harm, they have to go and show what all of the evidence is to, to have a reasonable suspicion why this person may be doing us harm. So they go to a court of judges. That's the best thing. That's the best protection I think we have.
4: Do you so, think that there, there's more protections than there were 40 years ago?
1: Uh, you know, I, I, I'm really... I would think that there is. There is a lot more attention. I really don't know what all the protections were 40 years ago, Um, but I do believe that uh, there is a heightened sense of ensuring that constitutional liberties and rights are not being violated. I can tell you that. That is always being asked. Jordan,
0: I hope you feel better. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Thank a lot you. for the call, Jordan. We have about a minute to go. I just want to mention the program that I think you announced last week, the Rhyme Rhyme Against This Week, oh, Rhyme good. Against rhyme, Crime sure. program. Could, in like 15 or 20 seconds, can you say what that is?
1: Yes, we are reaching out to young people primarily in Indianapolis, uh, ages 14 to 18 to get them to submit through a contest, kind of like an American Idol type of contest, their Rhyme Against Crime, to create their own rap song, their own poetry, their own lyrics. They're supposed to drop these CDs off at various high schools or community centers and uh, with the messages, positive messages, gun crime, you know, Hits home, or gun crime will get you big time, or peace in the streets, or you know, peace and anti-gun violence messages. Okay. And then that winner will get uh, the the winner. There will be ten finalists. Who will get to perform for a celebrity panel of judges, and then the winner gets to have their own uh, music video produced and their own in recording studio time done.
0: Okay, I want to make sure. You thank got you. A to mention that, I want to thank Susan Brooks, the U.S. Attorney for Southern Indiana, the so- Southern District of Indiana, for being here with us today. For producer Catherine Hegeman and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
3: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.